welcome to Footnotes and Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own stories. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. All right, so we are continuing to note our observations and use other inductive Bible study methods to walk through the book of John. Today is all about chapter two. So hopefully you have read or listened to the chapter at least once. Just a reminder to try and make this easier. I have read the chapter to you each week in the odd number episodes. So like the episode that posted right before this one. <laughs> so the study episode is always going to be the even one like this is you know, 504. And then the odd one is me reading the chapter. If you're interested in what it looks like to actually mark up the text, I have started posting clips on different social media platforms. So TikTok and Instagram and my Facebook page for this podcast. And the links are in the show notes and on my website, but you can pretty much just search footnotes and witness and find it. Today, we're starting with a very familiar story, the water into wine at a wedding. (laughs) Now, I find that especially with familiar stories, I need to slow down and really pay attention. So I actually read back through this story a couple of times. When we think we already know everything about a story, we tend to rush through it. And I also find, at least for myself, that I'm not as open and maybe not as vulnerable to new insights if I feel like I already know everything that's going on. Okay, so we're going to start right at verse one. (laughs) Open your Bible or take a look at verse one in your Bible app, however you do it. And you can see that we have a time marker. So the third day is a mark of time. So if you're keeping track of these inductive study methods for marking, you're going to draw a circle in the text wherever there's a time marker. Because if you look through chapter one, it actually points out the first day, the next day. So the third day, John actually keeps very good timing with all of these events. And I'm using a green pen to mark time and location markers when we double underline locations. But like I said, use whatever you want. I like to use as as much as I can a consistent color. So like the location or geographic marker in verse one is Cana in Galilee. So that gets a green double underline. Now I have just always kind of used green for location and time. I also use green highlighters for sin whenever it comes up as a keyword. You don't have to do that. But I have found that if you are more consistent with your color choices, it helps. Because that's what inductive study methods are there to help you do. They're to help you notice things. So I use the same kind of inks all throughout whenever possible. I'm using black ink to box my connecting words and underline my verbs and usually to like circle things. So black is kind of like the general color for me. So if I'm trying to point out something that's different than the regular connecting words or verbs, then that's why I use a color in that place. Like I said, use the things that are helpful to you and the things that are not helpful to you. Don't worry about it. So verse one and verse two, I might make a note of just who is in attendance because we have a little list, the mother of Jesus, Jesus, and his disciples. 
I also pointed out that Mama Jesus is the one who actually makes the point of the lack of wine. She's the one who notices it and brings it up. And she also displays this like huge level of confidence in Jesus. She expected and believed that Jesus would solve this problem. Like she brings it to him and says, hey, they're out of wine. And he kind of, woman, what do you want me to do with that? And she doesn't even have an argument with him about it. She just turns to the servants and is like, do whatever he tells you. So I also took note of her release of control. (laughs) I may be telling on myself a little bit here, but it isn't always the natural course of uh, women in general or control freaks to at least not suggest how to solve the problem. (laughs) Like when you see that a task needs to be completed, you usually can point it out and then say, hey, this is how you should do it. But she doesn't tell him how to solve this problem. She doesn't even hint at the best way to go about it. She just turns to the servants and say, do whatever he tells you. Now, on my first few readings of John, I would make note of the inclusion of the Jewish purification jars. And on my first couple of run-throughs, I'm probably just making a note of it. Like that's an odd detail that seems very specific. So I'm going to include that makes the observation, but probably just going to move on because I am not of the Jewish tradition and I don't really know the significance, but it kind of sticks out as a detail that's like, that seems very particular. Like it wasn't just any jars. It was very particular, these six Jewish purification jars. And it's definitely a rabbit trail worth exploring. It's also perfectly acceptable to just make note of it and move on. We don't need to pursue every single observation. I know that I needed permission to try not to understand all the things at once, especially if it is one of your first few run-throughs of a book. I would encourage you to try and just be satisfied with the job of simply familiarizing yourself with the text. We don't need to understand everything that's going on. It can get really cumbersome, and sometimes you're actually going to make it more frustrating. And the point is to have joy in the word, to familiarize yourself, but also let the Holy Spirit lead you to the things that you need to see, because this well never runs dry. You will always see new things every time you come back to the word. And so just kind of like I said, encouragement to make your observations, but sometimes it's good to just make it and then move on. The other point that stands out to me is the servants. The servants obey Jesus. And Jesus also gives them the privilege of being front row witnesses. Now, maybe it's a privilege. Maybe it's a burden. Like they're the ones who know, and maybe they don't want to tell anybody because they might sound crazy or they may be ostracized for it. But Jesus gives that either burden or gift to the servants. In verse 11, it says, this is the first of his signs. Now, sign is a keyword, and so you're going to highlight that, but also you could keep a running list while you go through the book of John. There's going to be lots of times where it's, this is another sign, this is the third sign, and this is a connecting word that lets you know that the first sign is what was just previously talked about. It's at the end of the story, and it says, this, the first of his signs. Now, this is where the connecting words can really help. They keep the narrative straight and they point to the point. So whenever it says a connecting word like therefore, 
that shows you that whatever comes after that word is because of whatever came before it. So whether it's coming up previously or whether it is the point that comes next, connecting words help steer you towards the point. Now, the next story is Jesus driving out the money changers in the temple. I feel like this story has oodles of layers, and I would really like to spend a long time here. But in this podcast, at least for right now, we do have a point, and that is to just familiarize ourselves with the text. So our goal is, can we identify what the story is, who the main characters are, and where it takes place after our first reading. So that's kind of your first glance through a book is can you understand those main concepts? And then next time you go through it, you're going to dig a little bit deeper. And then every time you go back to it, you look for more things that are connected in other books of the Bible, and you're going to get a more richer, it's going to get more saturated, that word interpreting the word and you're going to see connections all over the place. And I bet this is one of those stories that has lots of connections. But we do have a point today. So we are just going to take a look at what's actually happening. So for right now, I'm going to ask you some questions to kind of help you slow down and just make a mental or a if you're writing it down, you can do that. Awesome. Go ahead. You're going to just kind of see what's happening in the story. So what's being sold in the temple courts? What is actually being sold there? Why was there a need for currency exchange in the temple? Like it says that he drives out the money changers and pours their coins on the ground. So he's actually changing like the people there are changing currency. So you might have one type of money from one location, another type of money from another location, and there's an exchange rate. Very similar to what we would do today. Like if I took American dollars over to Europe, I would need to exchange them into euros. So like, why was there a need for currency exchange at the temple? How did Jesus drive them in out? What What did he do? What did he say? What did he drive them out with? And what were the animals for? Did they serve separate purposes? And what was the response of the people witnessing this? They say they say something back to Jesus. Um, We're going to look at the timing. So what festival was it about to be? We have a time marker here. And if you can go through and answer these questions, I think you'll get a really good just kind of overall view of what's happening, where it's happening, who's doing what, and that way you can kind of keep things straight. So hopefully that helps. I'll post the questions in the show notes too, of course. Then we move on verse 20. The Jews say that the temple that they're hanging out in took 46 years to build. So just a little footnote here, just a little like explanation. Solomon's temple, the first temple that was actually built. So after the tabernacle, like the tent that goes with them while they're wandering, the Israelite people, King David acquires everything that they're going to need to build an actual house for the Lord. And Solomon is the first one to actually build it. And it took him seven years to build. And we know that because of first Kings chapter six, verse 38 and second Chronicles between chapters three and five. So we know that that only took seven years to build, but it was kind of like a miracle. It was a big deal that he only took seven years to do it. And that's because his father, King David, acquired everything that they were going to need 
for many years before Solomon actually started building. So the second temple, we know that they're actually in the second temple because they say this temple took 46 years to build. Now it's a little convoluted, the timing, but we learned from Ezra that it was a very difficult process. So they were kind of taken out of their country. They're in Babylon. The Israelites are taken away. Their temple's destroyed. And then King Cyrus, who is a Persian king, lets them go back to their homeland. And he says, you can rebuild your temple. But there are just a ton of problems along the way. And it takes them a really long time to build it. So it's important to understand that backstory, because when Jesus says, I'm going to raise up this temple in three days, it's not just that it takes a long time to build things. It has all this backstory of how difficult it was as a society, as a people group in the area to acquire everything and to build this temple. Like it is a huge ordeal for God to say, for Jesus to say, I'm going to raise this temple in three days. It's so incredulous to hear it. And it's not just simply a logistics issue. But John is so wonderful. Thank you, John, because he explains these things. John helps us to avoid being like the original hearers of this statement, where we completely miss the point. John wants to make sure that we don't miss the point. And he also lets us know in verse 22 that even the disciples, upon first hearing it, missed the point that they had to have hindsight after Jesus's death and resurrection to really understand what Jesus was saying here. So he actually tells us Jesus was talking about his body as the temple, not this physical building, that the buildings don't matter anymore, that it's all about him. And so John explains this very convoluted statement that Jesus makes and lets us in on their own hindsight. And then we have verses 13 and 23 that kind of bookend each other about during the time of the Passover. And so just like somebody today would say like during the holidays or during Christmas time, that kind of defines a period of time. Passover is one celebration. It's one dinner. It's one like feast, but there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. And then there's things that happen after it. So it's kind of like our time of Christmas. We know that that's probably between like Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, but before New Year's. Like we have a very specific idea of what that time is. So during the time of Passover is kind of, kind of, not exactly, but kind of like that. So we have a little bit of an understanding of the timing, things going on in their culture. Everyone's getting ready for Passover. So remember, this is just an attempt to familiarize ourselves with the text, to understand what's happening, when it happens, and who is there. Now, I believe that it is always good to identify one thing. So if you're like in your study time and you go through chapter two and you make your observations, that's very like clinical almost. It's very academic. I'm going to highlight my words. I'm going to find my verbs. I'm going to make notes and ask questions. But I desperately encourage you <laughs> to make prayer a part of this time. Like at the beginning, God, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to study your word of John. What do you have for me today? Can you can you make the things that I need to see jump out of the page? Can you be in control of my thoughts and help me see what you want me to see today? And then at the end of that time, 
to really identify something that stuck out to you about the character of God, or maybe a new way of seeing the gospel, a new thing that you see about Jesus, and then praising him for it. God, I love that I saw this about you today in your word. I really think that um, Bible study is important, and it takes some work to get there. But it can very easily, and I'm only saying this because I'm guilty of it myself, become an academic endeavor instead of trying to build a relationship. Like God is a person on the other side of this. This is not just um, a, a list of facts that we are trying to acquire. We're trying to get to know someone. So picture your study time like sitting down at a coffee shop and having a conversation with a friend and asking them questions like, oh, what was that like growing up? Like you're trying to get to know them. And that's what we do when we go through God's word. So I really like to try and find something that I can praise God for at the end of my study time. And so today I wanted to share that in chapter two, I love that Jesus let servants in (laughs) on his first public miracle. Like I'm sure there were leads up to this. I don't know. But as far as we know in the Bible, this was his first public miracle. And from beginning to end, Jesus throughout his entire life on earth lifts up those in our human nature that we want to push down. He lifts up the downtrodden. He takes people out of the shadows. He spends time and effort. He's intentional about being with the outcasts of society. He is intentional about being with those who are less than. And it's because he likes to show that he did not consider them less than. (laughs) Sometimes our culture, our society will say that you are not worthy, that you have no place here, that you don't fit in, that you look different, and therefore you don't have a place. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about reading God's word to see Jesus rightly, because then we could understand that the church is supposed to be a safe place because it's God's house. It's not my house. It's not my pastor's house. It's God's house. And he has always opened the door to those who have very little who are diseased, who are on the outcast of society, who don't have it all figured out. Like if you're in a church full of perfect quote unquote people, then that church is not real. (laughs) They're not being honest and open and vulnerable. Or maybe you need to let the doors be open a little bit more because Jesus has always included everyone. And from the beginning of time, from the very page one, Genesis through Revelation, we see that God wants a diverse church, an open church where everyone is included. Jesus is for you. He sees you and he loves you. He chose you and he loves you in your best days and in your worst days. When you are just so broken that you can't even come out of the dark, he says, it's okay, I will come and I will sit with you. And I'm going to slowly bring in my light and get you out of here. Like, he's so amazing. (laughs) It's life giving. It's life changing. His salvation is long lasting and life changing. Jesus is so compassionate. And we see that in the way that he includes the servants at this wedding. And he is worth it.